Okay, thank you for listening in. You're listening to 15-Minute Medicine, where we try to make medicine as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. We have a very, very important topic that we'd like to discuss today, something that's on everyone's minds. We're going to get this out as soon as possible so that by the time you're still listening, it's going to be very relevant. We're going to be talking about all things related to the coronavirus pandemic that has currently got the world at a grip right now. We're doing this in association with the South African Global Surgical Society, as we thought that this would be something that, although not necessarily surgically related, um, something that needs to be spoken about by all disciplines. I have a few guests that have joined me today. By the way, I'm Farad Chugumadzi, your host for today. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves, starting with Kelly? Uh, thanks, Farai. Uh Hi, everyone. My name is Kelly Blair. I'm representing the WITS uh, student arm of the South African Global Surgical Society. And um, yeah, I just got to know Farai through that. And I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for letting us letting me join you today. Hi everyone, I'm Precious Chikura and I'm currently a medical doc and I'm also the founder of Frontline Refuge and that's the capacity I'm here in today. I'm really excited to speak about this topic today. Uh, so hi everyone, um, I'm Timothy Devet, or Tim as I prefer being called, and I'm a, a medical student at UCT but I've been um, over the past three years doing a, a PhD in medical microbiology primarily around tuberculosis, but also with more general interest in infectious disease and public health. Thank you, everyone, for introducing yourselves. And again, I'm very glad to have you all joining. For the listeners at home, wherever you may be, well, you should be at home, hashtag lockdown, hashtag stay at home. What's very important about this talk, I think, although the people that are gathered here, they're all from different, well, we all um, are in the medical profession, studying towards that at least. We're quite young at the present moment in time, and that would kind of imply that there's a lack of experience, so to speak. But I think in this case, it's very important that we don't necessarily sideline individuals from making any contributions. And that's something that I've started to notice, that a lot of older professionals are stagnant and not so ready to move forth from what they're, what, what they're used to and make use of the different modalities that are at play. So that's just something that I thought that we should mention. Currently in South Africa, we are on our third day of our lockdown. At the time of speaking in South Africa, we only have two deaths. Currently, we've started having, I don't know if we can actually call it mass screenings. I don't know what do you guys feel about it. It's not an accurate gauge for me to say, okay, so many people have been tested and I feel like that's an adequate number. But I think from a clinical perspective, being in the hospital, not enough people that fit the criteria for coronavirus testing are being tested. So on my side, I would say no. And do you think it's because of the constraints or do you think it's, do you think the, the argument of it being a resource constraint is good enough to say that why, why we don't have enough testing taking place currently? I think it's a, it's a difficult situation that the government find itself in because the resources we have are the resources we have and they've done a good job in mobilizing more resources billions of brands in order to do more testing but 
the reality is that not enough people are being tested and you're faced with a difficult situation where you have to, as a clinician, um, assess someone and assess their risk. And we already have a population where we have high rates of lower respiratory tract infections um, and immunocompromised people who might have been in hospital regardless of the coronavirus epidemic. And so you're in a situation where you have to assess what their risk is. And now also at a point where there is community transmission. So a travel history is no longer the only thing that we can be looking at now or contact with someone who has traveled because it is community transmission. So it's not an easy bond. um, So just to add to that, and thank you for your comment, Precious. Right now in South Africa, I was just looking for the statistics. 31,963 people had been tested as of yesterday, the 28th of March. Currently, there's 1,197 confirmed cases, with Gauteng and the Western Cape having the most, 533 and 271, respectively. Do you think that this is, do you think that there's a lot of undetected cases? Besides the fact that we aren't having enough tests being done, which is obvious, like you've just mentioned, but do you think that an, a good amount are being found and being tested? Or do you think that a lot of people are being turned away unfairly in your experience as an, as an intern in one of the public hospitals? So I think for me, working in the Peter Maritzburg complex, I work in three hospitals just to give a very brief background. And one of them is Gray's, which is the Corona Epicenter. And then there's Edendale and Northdale. And currently I've been working in Edendale where we haven't had a lot of patients coming in saying they want to be tested. So no one has been turned away in that sense. But there's been debate amongst patients who have presented with acute respiratory illnesses, whether or not they should be tested. And at some points, you know, people haven't been tested where we thought, okay, maybe they should have been. If there were more tests available, they would have been tested. So I think that's the context in which I would say not enough people are being tested. In terms of the tests that are available, the main testing that I've seen that we've come to know now as being used for testing is the nasopharyngeal swabs. Do you think that the sensitivity is high enough? And are there any other tests that you think are good enough if um, we are not using um, nasopharyngeal swabs only? Cool. Um, so sure, I, I think I'll talk a little bit or offer some comment on, on testing more generally, right? Um, so, so I think it, it's an interesting and complicated question to say, like, are, are we doing enough testing and so on? Certainly, like in terms of if we look at countries that have been particularly effective at getting COVID-19 under control, it seems that like very widespread testing, as happened in South Korea, is is optimal. Um, That certainly, of course, changes to some extent, and the demand for widespread testing changes depending on how the pandemic or rather the local epidemic develops. So at this stage, um, I suppose... The, the vast majority of spreads still has been from, or the vast majority of cases still have been people with travel history. That, of course, is changing. And, and in some ways, I would say that the requirement for a lockdown is probably partially tied into a current lack of testing capacity that hopefully in the next few weeks will be expanded, right? So in terms of um, the test itself, I, I think the PCR-based test is the gold standard. So, so for listeners that either don't remember or um, that aren't aware what a PCR-based test is, it's, it's looking for the nucleic acid, or in this case, um, the RNA um, that the virus produces. So 
so it's a pretty sensitive test depending on what where you are in the disease course if if you have very low levels of lacric it's not going to pick it up um but if you have higher levels um it, it's very sensitive and, and good at doing what it does one of the problems with the pcr based test um as has been seen globally to some extent is that there is a sort of constraint on on reagents so mm. um the reagents are basically under global demand um things like polymerases and stuff that that are used in the reaction for the test itself and so so that creates some constraints but there are also interesting and potentially exciting developments that are ongoing in that space um so so one of the things that i think is potentially the most interesting is is the fact that um cepid who produce gene expert tests which are, are widely used in south africa for tb have recently gotten preliminary fda approval for a gene expert based test that looks for uh, sars-cov-2 so um so potentially and supposedly south africa and the nhls is going to get access to those reagents in april and that could potentially massively expand testing capacity in terms of tests that are not pcr based those would primarily be things that are looking for i suppose antibody responses really from what i understand they're not really there aren't that many tests in that sort of space widely available so they're they're starting to develop some sort of rapid tests in that regard in China from what i understand but those arguably are, are significantly less sensitive than the pcr tests although they have the advantage that can at the bedside so something that i came across the other day as we've all been kind of glued to our social media feeds and the news recently i happened to come across someone had tweeted out a an educational source from um Stanford Medical School's um Twitter feed and it was actually going back and showing people how to do a nasopharyngeal swab does the sensitivity decrease markedly if you aren't able to obtain a very good sample as in so i've seen according to the video you have to kind of reach right to the end of the nasopharyngeal tract and the oropharyngeal tract to get a good um sample um so so i i have to admit i'm i'm not an expert in terms of the sampling itself but but what one could sort of intuitively say is that in order for the test to detect rna you need to make sure that you're getting rna basically so that means that you need to be scraping the nasopharyngeal region getting cells off and onto your swab and then the test basically will be able to detect that so if you're not effectively swabbing basically the back and getting cellular debris off then you're not going to um get a positive test or a, a valid test in that sense um in general i think the assumption is that the swabbing is fairly useful or successful at doing what it does though of course there is always a risk that you could cuz why i say this is because the other day i saw a response from Bill Gates and he was actually saying that to combat the lack of PPE in developing countries that it's been suggested that that patients could actually self administer this test by themselves and it seems simple enough but yeah i don't want to underline the risk that you might decrease sensitivity if it's not done properly but that also extends to healthcare professionals not knowing how to do the sampling well themselves so i was just wondering about that kelly we've been speaking quite a lot recently exchanging all the different podcasts and different reading material there is which there's too much of 
One thing that I think has been very good, but also I think can be very confusing, is the amount of protocols that have come out. I think it's very commonplace to have different protocols for different hospitals, different countries. But at a time like this, with something that's still um, quite uncertain, what do you make of all of these protocols which aren't necessarily evidence-based? Do you think it's good that everyone's trying to publish as much as possible? Or do you think it would be better if maybe Gauteng comes together, the Western Cape comes together, and then they come up with one protocol that everyone can use instead of having different protocols from all over and then you just decide what you want to do? It's interesting to understand the difference. So the way treatment goes is obviously according to the presentation of the patient. And I think there's quite a lot of data at the moment. Well, there's only one really valid uh, randomized controlled trial to support uh, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. It was a study on 36 patients that showed that in the when they presented with a fever, dyspnea, tachycardia, and a, um, oxygen saturation below 90%, chloroquine was and azithromycin was seen to reduce the viral load and had a really positive effect on those patients. Obviously. A lot more needs to be done. And uh, it was, so 70% of the patients were improved on that. But the problem, what is really, I think, the medical community is really battling with is the pa- are the patients that are coming in or experiencing severe symptoms. And I think that, that's where we're seeing people going from kind of tractable to uh, like unattractable kind of conditions. So, and that's the stage where I think we, everyone's like really scrambling to find a treatment that can change that. At the moment, what's up for treatment at the moment is looking at anti-inflammatory agents, so all of biologics. So tocilizumab is really still out there as a treatment to, which is an interleukin-6 um, inhibitor. So that's just a biologic agent, which has actually been used for giant cell arthritis in South Africa and as a biologic demand for, for uh, rheumatoid arthritis. But that's that's kind of where we're looking at is trying at that severe stage where people are going into an odd kind of stage of the disease, but trying to actually manage the inflammatory response rather than the viral load. What, so what has been interesting in the last couple of days is the plasma exchange, which I don't know, I mean, that has been very successful for the five patients that they did, they did it on in the U.S where they took plasma from patients that had um, been, that had recovered from COVID and um, they'd transfused it to severely ill patients and they all, all five have um, completely recovered in 37 days. Yeah, I think at that stage, at this stage, we're really looking at what the results come from uh, the studies done with remdesivir. Uh, yeah, remdesivir seems to be the main, like, a stronghold in terms of uh, an antiviral which was which is effective against SARS-1 and against MERS, against MERS, and it was actually seen as the drug that was supposed to help with Ebola, but it wasn't effective in Ebola. But at the moment, they're supplying remdesivir to patients who are pregnant and children, and they're also allowing it to patients who are uh, for compassionate drug use. So that's when patients are really like at their end end stage and are um, very immediately going to pass their um. As a, they're looking at using it in those stages. Gilead, the company that's producing this, is looking at um, releasing a um, an effective trial result within the next few weeks. 
So it's really those end end stage patients that everyone's really battling with the results. South Africa's using uh, in those situations. South Africa's protocol is to use pastelizumab, um, to use polygam, so initiate uh, like immunoglobulin treatment, and then also to use hydrocortisone. Um, but uh, we don't at that stage. Yeah, only we're using antiretrovirals in addition to that. But I don't think at that stage we. That's how we lost up the one patient that we've lost. It's we've gone at this stage. We haven't really been able to bring patients back from that age, other than with plasma exchange. Uh, the situation of not having resources, which is something that I think many doctors in the South African context are quite accustomed to. So, in a sense, not our our country cannot reinvent the wheel, but there is value in it adjusting content protocols from other countries to make sure that they're content specific. That said, it's just been interesting looking at our treatment protocol guidelines and seeing how they deviate from uh, global treatment guidelines and what was used in China and what's been used in years in Canada. Just for interest sake, I think the globally Lopinava and have been used as a combination, but South Africa is the first country that will be using it with Rivaveran, um, it's which is how we've been using it uh, in the context of HIV. So it's quite interesting that our experience with HIV and antivirals in that uh, context has actually allowed us to have more of an um, maybe more access to and more of an understanding of how the be- what the benefit of rebarbarin would be in this situation. And just yeah, I think the idea of having a protocol is is useful it is streamlining and it does help with individuals that are coming from uh, different departments into the more emergency um, setup but i think the evidence supporting those protocols is really lacking a lot of the protocols are kind of testing and seeing what works and then going to adapt along the way so i think it is at, at this stage everyone's building the pain and flying it at the same time when it comes to the protocols Tim, do you have anything to add? Um, yeah, certainly. So, so I think, yeah, that's that's a great sort of overview of different treatment modalities that are available. I, I think, like, one of the major difficulties at the moment, right, is that we just, we don't have clinical trials, or rather, we don't have randomized control trials that that are telling us what the best results are. So, so I mean, for example, the, the uh, study Kelly mentions on on chloroquine, um, which was done in France, that, for example, wasn't a randomized control trial, and it was sort of looking at proxies for potential patient response. So in that case, looking at at viral load, which is arguably useful, but but certainly wasn't that correlated necessarily with the clinical benefit. At this stage, from what I understand, there, there's really one particular study which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine a few weeks ago on on the use of lapinavir in in China, and that showed uh, that there wasn't a difference in mm. between the control groups. Um, although that, sorry, Tim, was that was that just lapinavir yeah. or lapinavir and ritonavir together? Yeah. I, I think I think it was lapinavir uh, ritonavir. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although that study has some sort of caveats and criticisms to it. So, for example, most of the patients only got allocated to their treatment modality. I think quite a number of days into the disease process, so I think around 10 or 11 days. So they were yeah. quite severely ill, um, and whether or not that is a valid result is is questionable. So I think 
I mean, the one thing to point out in particular is, is the, the World Health Organization's Solidarity Trial, which is this very large multinational uh, clinical trial that's been put in place and South Africa is participating in that as well. And so that's to compare the, the four different arms, which are chloroquine, remdesivir, which was mentioned, uh, lapinavir, ritonavir, and lapinavir and ritonavir with interferon beta. So I, I think that study and will probably have the best capacity to reach statistical significance and get a large enough sample size rapidly and and will probably tell us or hopefully tell us if any of these treatments do improve outcome. We can't end this this conversation on treatment without mentioning vaccines. From all the sources I've been reading reading from, from the past few days, it says that vaccines should take at minimum 12 to 18 months. I don't know if anyone's heard anything a bit more optimistic or more pessimistic. Um, yeah. I certainly haven't heard anything more optimistic. <laughs> yeah. It was actually funny. When you think you're like, oh no, this is a pandemic, but you can't skip certain processes. I had to go back to to a lot of elementary topics that you just, that you um, learn about in medical school, all the stages of developing a vaccine, going through your exploratory stage, your preclinical stage, clinical stage, regulatory review and approval, manufacturing and quality control. And again, um, if anyone has a chance, you should look at the video. There's two videos from Bill Gates' TED Talk five years ago, and recently he did another video with the TED community. And I was a bit disappointed that he had to kind of put this in context, speaking about how how manufacturing and getting a vaccine out is quite a laborious task. And you can't bypass a lot of these things. And even when it we finally do get a vaccine that works, after testing it, it's not going to be available for everyone all at once. So who's going to go first? Whether it's healthcare workers, whether it's the people that can afford it, the developed world, the developing world. So we're still in for quite a long ride. Yeah. I wanted to move in to ask what what are the things that currently are not known? I think there's multiple, multiple things. And we've already started to discuss it. How long is it going to take to make a vaccine? What treatments actually work? What else is currently not known at this stage? Um. Well, I'll I'll go first on this if I could, which is um, I I think we just don't know like a lot of really basic information that would be useful to know. Um, so so for example, like case fatality rates, right? We we have crude case fatality rates and estimations of case fatality rates, but we don't really know how deadly like COVID nineteen is on a wider population scale. And I, I think that speaks to a sort of a larger issue, which is that we don't really know the actual numbers of people that are infected within particular populations. Yeah. So even within China or places, I suppose South Korea is maybe the best, we there are probably fairly large numbers of people that are like very mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic yes. that um, mm. potentially could dramatically reduce in some ways like what the actual case fatality rate are. Tied into that, then, I suppose, is a question of like whether or not you actually become immune and what degree of immunity you develop. And, and these are all, I think, really important questions for us to know the answers to when we think about social distancing and um, lockdowns and so on, because what the answers to those questions are is going to heavily impact how effective these methods really are. What do you think is keeping people from applying social distancing 
quarantining, all these things that have been mentioned that are the only measures that can be taken. What do you think is stopping the odd odd one or two people, sometimes groups, from not adhering to the rules that are being set down in different countries, except where it's forced with military aggression? I don't know if that's the right word to use. Precious, could you maybe um, comment on that? I think there's a lot of factors that have resulted in, in people not adhering to the lockdown rules. And I think one of them is because coronavirus doesn't seem personal yet. Mm. So a lot of a lot of us are seeing it on TV or you know on the news, on social media, but not a lot of people personally know someone who's been affected or have seen anyone who has died. All of these numbers are very impersonal, and so I think that drives the the environment that we've been having currently, where people kind of take it as a holiday as opposed to actually socially distancing themselves. And also the idea that when the stats are released, all the populations are said to be at risk and people with comorbidities are said to be at risk. And then everyone who falls outside of that assumes that they are in the safe zone and therefore Mm. doesn't feel like they need to take part in that. And because the mortality rates have been quoted as 1% to 10%, it's like, oh, okay, that's not such a big number. We'll all be fine. Whereas that's only necessarily the case when social distancing is applied and also that those statistics aren't necessarily accurate as we discussed. So, yeah, that's that's why. If you look at the SARS epidemic between 2002 and 2004, there were a total number of 8,098 cases with a 10% death rate. MERS in 2012 had 2,494 with a 34% death rate. And Ebola, over quite a long, longer period, I think it was also starting from 2012, but I might be corrected on that, 28,616 with a 40% death rate. Those death rates are markedly higher, and I completely agree with you. With Ebola, before you were even infectious, you are probably dead, needing hospitalization, whereas with SARS, people are walking around, a lot of people aren't well, I mean, are completely well, and that is definitely contributing. Do you think that healthcare professionals are helping to helping this, well, helping the, the spread of false reassurance? I think it, it also depends on which region you're looking at, right? If you're looking at a country like Italy, they are definitely not spreading false reassurance. Mm. And initially when, when coronavirus started, you know, the outbreak that started in the West, the message was, this is just a flu. We'll all be fine. Wash your hands. Don't your face. And that was that was the general messaging to the public. We'll all be fine. Like, don't panic about it. It's going to be okay. And so that message did sort of infiltrate into the public and is still the message that, that people are taking seriously. And now the messaging has changed because obviously the virus, the picture of the virus is evolving. The picture of the mortality rates are evolving. And now we're sending a different message, but it's obviously not getting to the ground. But yeah, I don't know what you think, Kelly. Yeah, I think the I think the other part of that, I think all of the that is completely true, and I I just think there's also a sentiment uh, in a lot of people, whether it's relating to COVID or any other illness, that you know, at worst case scenario, they'll go to the hospital and they'll, something will happen and then they'll be fine. You know, I don't think it's really settled into people's like hearts and minds that you know there is not once you're at an acute stage there's not a huge amount that can be done for you at that point and i think i think you know 
I, I just feel that, you know, people who continue smoking and knowing that they're going to get lung disease just kind of eventually get to the hospital and hope something's going to change. I think it's just as a human nature thing that we don't quite interpret mm. long-term mm. problems at yeah. a level. And I, I think that's part of it. It's something that's, I think, prevalent in all of medicine. And right now it's because the stakes seem so high. That's why we are pushing for it to kind of change or hoping that it will change. But I think it relates to a lot of different diseases. So, yeah, I agree with you completely there, Kelly. Why I kind of I brought up the notion of healthcare providers not also adding to this is because, I won't lie, at the beginning of this, I read the initial reports, didn't pay too much attention. And I also said, yeah, it's a flu. Speaking to colleagues, I also said, no, don't worry about it too much. I, didn't, I couldn't even conceive that the numbers would, the projected numbers would reach um, as high as they have. But I, I quickly made an about turn. Do you think that there's a lot of people that are unwilling to change? Or do you think that's not much of a problem? Like to say that there are people that previously said one thing and now have said, oh, actually, no, it's a lot more serious. Okay, I'll go. I think that there's been a change in sentiment as things have evolved. Do you think that there's still a portion of people who view it as it's just a flu, like most of us will be fine? Um, and I do think that a lot of us have changed our minds because initially, obviously, we analyze things according to data, um, the facts and the figures that come in. And those facts and figures are changing. And it's forcing us to also change as a result. So I do think that there are people that have definitely changed their perspectives. And in terms of disseminating um, information, do you think enough is being done currently from government, from healthcare professionals? Do you think that we are communicating actively enough with the public to make them understand exactly how serious things are, what needs to be done? Whether you look at South Africa, whether you look at it on a global stage, Tim, can you start with you? Uh, sure. So, I mean, I was also in the, in the same book, right, or in the same place where I was saying that, yeah, this is flu and so on. And to some extent, I think I still tell myself that, right, because it's it's difficult to sort of continue living if you think that you're going to be struck down the next day <laughs> by like, this deadly disease. I think, I mean, I think the fact that we're in lockdown <laughs> indicates that uh, the state is taking this seriously, right? And and I think the the narrative has, has certainly shifted. I think another thing that's interesting to contemplate is is the idea that in many ways the risk of this this illness and, and COVID-19 is not necessarily to to individuals. To some extent, of course, it is, but of, as as we've said and as healthcare providers have said frequently, like 80% of people will just develop a mild illness. But a lot of the, the damage that this thing produces is, is from system level effects, right? It's when mm. massive numbers of patients get infected. It's mm. when massive numbers of people end up developing even moderate symptoms and requiring some level of hospitalization or some level of healthcare. And when that mm. happens at a massive scale and at a, a really rapid rate, then that creates healthcare system pressure. And that's what you're seeing in like Italy, in New York, in, in parts of the UK. And I think that's in many ways what we're trying to avoid, right? So now I bring in Kelly, since you're part of the South African Global Surgical Society. So a lot of things have been put on hold and I found myself actually being quite biased because I've been very quick to point out that the economy definitely will fail, will take a hit globally but it's something that's necessary that needs to be stopped to kind of to allow for the reproductive rate to drop 
to a very low rate, ideally one or less. But if you look at it on a medical level, and we look at the example of surgery, global surgery, we're already saying that there are not enough surgeries being performed around the world, and this is leading to mortality, morbidity. Now, in Gauteng province has taken the step of cancelling the vast majority of elective lists. Do you think that a way should be found to kind of continue, or do you think it's something that's going to have to be looked at later? That's talking about surgery, looking at HIV services, looking at TB services, all of the above. Um, right, I think this is, uh, again, linking to your question um, about what we don't know. And I think this is a big, big uh, factor, of, or one of the big repercussions. You've mentioned economic, but this is, again, a secondary health repercussion of, of COVID. Uh, and, and again, mentioning what Tim said, uh, the health system's capacity to manage COVID, a secondary problem. And I think, I think they're looking at the, the, the protocol around how surgeries will be managed that only all electives have been pushed down the line to an undetermined state and all emergency surgeries go forward. But, um, and, and some of those include surgeries related to et cetera. Um, I know that a lot of the hospitals are using the anesthetic machines in in um, theatres as as ventilators, as is the case at, at Barra, um, in Johannesburg. And so I think we are going to find this huge wave or backup of of needs of, sur- of need- surgeries that will be needed once things start to slow down with regard to COVID. And I hope that doesn't result in kind of a whole backlog in the future. Um, I think it's, it's again, it's coming to the global surgery perspective. Um, in many cases, um, pediatric surgery, surgery that are really needed in, in our young population, it's becoming to be seen as a public health need. You know, I worry about young, our younger patients that are needing these surgeries and, and what the repercussions will be for them, whether it's having to kind of sit out for longer with, with, with problems that are being seen as non-emergency cases. But yeah, I think that falls under the, the, the things of we don't know what's going to happen and what the repercussions are going to be in those poor patients. But uh, with regard to surgical staff, they are also being seen as a, <laughs> they're being furloughed for the meantime, um, just because they will probably be seen as staff, as like relief staff over time if the more kind of internal medicine staff starts to either get ill or become gets burnt out. Uh, we're going to start to see how surgical staff becomes is useful <laughs> as a second wave. So it, it is interesting um, how any everyone in the sphere of surgery is going to kind of have to um, manage on a secondary scale the impact of COVID. So a, a concept in global surgery, I don't know if people are familiar with, but Kelly alluded to it now, is the concept of task sharing, and that's where personnel normally of um, lower on the lower end of the skill spectrum would be required to work in, for example, instead of getting an, anest- an anesthetist to always be present for um, surgeries, getting an anesthetic nurse to come and help or getting nurses to help with um, obstetric cases. Um, so just getting people to patch up for the more simpler cases, if that, um, if I'm making any sense. Looking at um, what Kelly has said, if we bring it down a notch and we talk about the role of junior doctors currently 
a lot of hospitals currently aren't um, aren't working at the same rate as they were before because the workload isn't there if all these elective cases are being cancelled. So surgery interns, anesthetic interns and orthopedic interns, just to name a few, um, aren't having as much work available because there's just not that many patients in Gauteng to speak of. Precious, what do you what do you think should then happen with interns? Or what do you think is currently being done? Do you think that interns are prepared in the environment that we find ourselves in? Is our training good enough? Should we even have to see these patients? Are we being supported? And I think that's not just for not just for interns, but all doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists. So I think that training will, will definitely suffer because lists are being cancelled. We only have a certain period of time that we are doing internship unless that is extended. And so we're not even in a position to leave interns to be with critical patients because they haven't finished anesthetics and they, they're not competent in those skills, for example. And even with surgery, there are certain skills that you have to acquire. And with a, a workload that has been sort of a smaller workload, you, I do think that there will be a compromise in training. And that's something that has been discussed. I do think that there's a, a difficult decision to make because ideally you would like senior people to be treating the most ill patients, the acute patients. But then you have seniors that are that have comorbidities that are above the age of 60 who are actually at risk looking after those patients. So ideally, from a physiological point of view, we are the people that should be at the front line. But from a skills point of view, we shouldn't necessarily be in the front line. I do think that the situation is unprecedented and do have to put all of our skills where they are needed and we might have to kind of forego some training if, you know, when the system starts to really get overloaded. Because at this point, things are being stopped and things are being locked down in an effort to prevent the system being overloaded. But once that time comes, then we're all going to just have to be rerouted into where we needed. But do you think that, sorry to interrupt you, but do you think that no, okay. your, your, the hospitals that you're working at or where your friends are working at are mm-hmm. doing in place measures to make you prepared if need be? So I think, I don't think all hospitals are are doing enough. There have been hospitals where interns get talks on how to protect themselves, on how to approach the situation should a COVID-19 patient be present if they are acutely ill. But the first thing is that there's no protective equipment at all. You know, people are firstly stealing protective equipment and then the stock is also not enough for this kind of situation. And and so it it's fine if you're telling people how to protect themselves and telling people what the protocols are, but if that protective equipment isn't available, if all the things that you're saying on this use are not there, then what are we really saying? How how are we being supported in the situation? Um so that's that's the first thing. And then secondly, from a mental health care point of view. There's a lot going around in social media, a lot going around in society and even within our communities as healthcare workers about this pandemic and about healthcare workers that have been infected. Currently in South Africa, we don't have doctors that have been infected from patients. They've all had sort of contact with people who have traveled. But we can't negate the fact that internationally, doctors have been dying, healthcare workers have been dying and have been exposed to patients in terms of the infection. So I think that it's something to think about that people's mental health uh, really is at risk here and people have families 
that they're going back to every day and how are we actually supporting them um, with that mental strain? So other than just the protocols, what measures are in place to ensure that you're in a mental state to actually look after patients? I think you yeah, you hit a, run, a lot of raw nerves there because one thing I've been asking myself since the beginning is, well, not to the beginning, but as time has gone by, but is how is our the country, our individual governments, and particularly our hospitals, the way that they're responding, is it proactive or is it reactive? And is this... We're in a very unprecedented time. No one could have predicted this, but it's not like we don't have day-to-day challenges already. And again, do we act? Do our hospitals act in a way that's proactive or reactive? Mental health is self-explanatory, but it's something that gets brought up every day with very little done. You've made quite a big effort this year to kind of get that on board with the website you're about to launch. I think you should mention that as well. But is that not a huge problem that, I don't know if it's just me, but I feel that the response has been largely reactive from hospitals rather than proactive, where there's been, I think, a good opportunity with all of this to kind of predict or at least try and predict what's going to happen. Mm. So I think that. You know, we have to, we do have to be fair in terms of what the demands are on public hospitals. And even before this pandemic started, it was very difficult to manage the, the caseloads that we had in almost every department. Mm. And so if you look at a department like surgery, they have been reactive. And not because they don't care, not because they don't understand the gravity, but because for them to cancel one slate, is is almost disastrous. And yeah. now to say you have to cancel all of your elective slates, it's very difficult to now prioritize who really is elective and who is urgent. We know mm. who the emergencies are, we know who's urgent, but who out of our electives is going to become someone who is urgent or an emergency? And and that's difficult to prioritize. So it is it is difficult from a public hospital point of view to stop your sort of non-essential services when you know that people need these services without having a directive from the government. And I think once the directive came through, staff at the hospitals have really tried. But now it also comes to, do they have the resources to do so? And that's not 100% in their control. So I think Mm. that there has been a bit of a slow response, but it isn't entirely the fault of the public hospitals. And the role of private hospitals also has to be sort of scrutinized and private GPs also has to be scrutinized because they are more likely to have come into contact with um, the patients that initially uh, tested positive. Um, So there I I disagree with you a bit because, for example, in the casualty that I'm working in right now, when patients get triaged Mm -hmm. initially, they end up sitting in a line Sometimes they can grab a bed if it's empty enough, but the majority of them are all standing in a line for however long it takes for them to be seen. Inevitably, you have patients that have TB, which again is something very contagious. A lot of patients, they're sitting right next to patients who have small cuts. Now, I don't know why it's something that you can't realize this is a problem. You can't have someone TB sitting next to someone who's completely fine or who might not even be fine, even with someone who's HIV positive. And then in this case as well with coronavirus, we know how it spreads, very similar to TB. And still we had people, suspected cases, sitting in line. And it took 
other hospitals, like 10 other, not even 10, I don't even know how many other hospitals to start finding new ways to triage patients and change the flow of patient entry for them to be like, okay, maybe that's a good idea. So, yeah, I don't know. I was reading a, a comment by the director general of um of the World Health Organization, and he spoke about India's situation with polio. India is one of the last um, countries to completely eradicate polio. But when they finally were able to get it under control, the approach was different in every single was different in all the different villages. So it wasn't a blanket kind of approach to to each region to be like, okay, this is what we're all going to do, but the people working in those areas had to be like, okay, these are our needs, therefore we need to adjust. So even now, I still feel like, I don't know, it's very personal, but I feel like my hospital is currently doing things as everyone else is doing it and not necessarily kind of finding out what would be easier for our patients or our communities. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's completely true. Like, you also have to look at the infrastructure that you have, how you can patients, what protective gear you have. Because, for example, in one of the cavities that we work in, there's a lot of different um, areas for people to go into. Mm. Once they come into casualty, they'll be redirected to medicine or they'll be redirected to a surgical area. There's areas for people to go to while they're still recovering to patients. Yes. And they are given masks if they are infectious or if they are coughing, for example. So it, I think it does depend from hospital to hospital. And there are hospitals that are managing it well um, under the circumstances. And I think there is a bit of a a catch-up curve for some hospitals. Social media, good or bad in this case? I think it's been really good in reaching out to people with regards to how to protect themselves and what the gravity of the situation is. But I do think that it's also a really big propagator of fake news. and it's a big propagator of anxiety amongst people because you do kind of have access to the news or to the radio outside of social media. And that kind of gives you the bullet points that you need to know. But on social media, it's kind of like a constant drive of anxiety. And that's what I think the negative impact is. But as I've stated, I do think there are positive impacts. I don't know what everyone else feels about that. Kelly? I think in a way, social media has been a huge volume button for this uh, pandemic. And I think it's been, as you exactly as you said, it got huge benefits and some quite major negative side effects. I think obviously the fake news side is a problem and, and the echo chamber idea where my social media like box will not look the same as yours. And I think then propagates personal ideas about things. And uh, I think that becomes problematic. Um, but in terms of, I think, uh, holding people socially accountable, I think from a social behavior change perspective, social media has been amazing. Um, if I think from the shutdown perspective, like the kind of interpersonal, whether it's like um, support or policing, <laughs> I think South Africans also like to kind of check in on each other it's quite funny but um i think that's you know whether it's making sure people aren't getting out of their houses and going for walks when they shouldn't be or you know information about people 
support sites or places where you can get food for the homeless and that kind of thing. I think it's given voice to smaller organizations and groups of smaller people that we may not have gotten over the news and, and through, through, through me, uh, mainstream media. And I, I, I have thought quite a lot about what the role social media has played in this pandemic versus, say, HIV, and whether uh, HIV as a pandemic would have looked differently had we had social media at that stage, just as a as a mm. sideline. But um, I think it's been very interesting, the role it's played, and yes, some positive and some negative from that perspective. Tim, I feel like you're someone who's quite glued into Twitter, and also I think that you have quite a good background in the academic space. What do you, what do you project? What do you think we're in store for with COVID nineteen? Where do you think this is all going to lead? If you're to make a bold guess, oh, that's that's a tricky one. Hey, um, the truth is that I have no idea. I I genuinely don't know how this ends, um, and I'm not sure when it will end. But what I would say is that it's probably all going to drag on for at least another year, I would imagine, or six months, six months minimum, probably more. I think we will live with some degree of social distancing for far longer. And I think ultimately the world is going to be a fundamentally different place after this for many different reasons. Simply economic-wise, the impact of this is, is going to be almost unprecedented. And I don't know what the world will look like afterwards. (laughs) I've seen a lot of suggestion of intermittent social isolation, social distancing. And I was just scared that if that was to happen after these 21 days that South Africa is currently undergoing, will people not kind of grow tired of constantly having to go into lockdown in their homes? Is that not going to affect the progress with coronavirus, especially if with COVID-19, especially if we are scared that there's a chance of um, reinfection being a, a definite possibility. I think to wrap up, we've been speaking for quite a long time, and I think we've come up with a lot of good things, but we can't always just complain and bring up problems, but we have to also look forward and start to kind of brainstorm about how we can either help or see our suggestions to help. So from each of you, could I get one, one kind of positive story of a country or place that's done very well? And if it were up to you, what innovation or step would you put in place to rid us of COVID-19? Starting with, huh, who should we start with? Let's start with Kenny. Okay, thanks for putting in the deep end. No, I think one of the positives has really been just the, there has been so much solidarity socially, even though it's been separate. I, I think just from a global perspective, obviously intra-country there are like very many different, different um, kind of chapters of this, but I think it's amazing because as soon as you want to feel like, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? It's immediately you realize this is echoed across the world. So there is this sense of collective, collective, like teamwork across many, many different countries that I don't think has really happened before. And that's something that I, it's quite interesting. It's something yeah. to be it's positive and just in how South Africans have responded to the shutdown I think it's really difficult to initiate in a country like ours and I think there's been a really positive response from a lot of people on how people have managed it and I think our government and our health department I personally have found have really taken this to task early on than a lot of many countries and I think we can there's a lot to be proud of uh, just in our own context so I think that that's really 
I think the solidarity has been something that I've like found as really inspirational. Something that I would do that would like be a kind of keystone to changing things. I just if we could find PPE that was uh, reusable, I think that would be a game changer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really think at the moment that's the big that's the immediate and the problem for a lot of health workers because PPE is creating such a barrier to to helping people. It's creating a barrier to to improvement of our the mental health of the, all the um, health workers and and you know their relatability to friends and family it's it's a huge huge uh, hump in the in our in our progress at the moment so you know that's what I'm going to be whispering into my pillow at night them come up with a really good PPE solution okay that's a good one precious I think in terms of a country that I'd like to highlight is actually South Africa. I think we've done really, really well. And initially, we were still kind of catching up to what coronavirus was. But I think when the gravity hit, the government really mobilized. And they mobilized private sector in terms of funding. They mobilized the business sector just in terms of treating employees fairly. And they mobilized the public sector with with regards to healthcare. So I think that, and they've been communicating very effectively. So I think that South Africa for me is actually an example with such, with with few resources, if you're looking at them compared to, you know, the rest of the world and how they've handled it. And you look at our resources, we're really punching above our weight. And so I would say, I would really say that South Africa is the most positive example that I can think of with regards to handling this, this, pandemic and then I would say in terms of what I would do to to solve the problem on my side I think it's something that I'm already passionate about and that's mental health I think that having people at the front line who are energized and ready to take on the challenge that's happening because it's going to be chronic you know as Tim mentioned it'll probably be six months to a year that this will be happening when you're in a constant state of anxiety. And I do think that providing some sort of mental health care is essential. And one of the things that I've done is started uh, an online platform called Frontline Refuge. And we're on Twitter and we're on Facebook and our website is launching in the next two weeks. And it's really, it's there to provide free mental health care, obviously remotely because we're in lockdown to healthcare workers and people are providing it for free, either via WhatsApp, either via Skype or Zoom or or any of the platforms that they they choose. And there's also going to be information on how to protect yourself from a mental point of view as a healthcare worker. So that's something that we've mobilized mental health professionals to do because they also want to play a role in this. So, yeah, I think that's the intervention that I would put in place to keep people energized to actually fight this. And Tim? Well, I suppose at this stage, I, I guess I'd like to echo um, what, what has been said so far to some extent. And I, I think South Africa has been really admirable in in our response. Um, I, I think we can learn from countries like South Korea, for example, which have done really extensive testing. But I think what we can say is South Africa has been quite proactive. And what I think we've done a very good job of is explicitly saying that what matters here is is life and what matters mm. is, is saving lives. And I think that's very different and a different narrative from something that we've seen 
for example, from Donald Trump or the US. In terms of, in terms of the long term, I, I think maybe what I see potentially coming out of this, this pandemic is a recognition that like health, health is a complicated and system level product, right? So it, it's not enough just to say that we need to have a sophisticated healthcare sector it needs to work in conjunction with an economic system that's sustainable and that brings people up. It needs to have a health care sector that doesn't just have private and public sectors, but sectors that work together. And even on a global level, that we cannot simply rely on our individual um, countries and our individual responses, but we really need a global level response um, that isn't simply profit driven or economic driven, but is really focused on saving lives and hopefully improving the quality of lives of people. But who knows? We'll see. <laughs> Last but not least, I have a lot more to say, but we've spoken for quite a long time. My closing comments was that two countries that have done very well, obviously South Korea, and surprisingly, um, the other one that I'd like to mention is Taiwan, a country that's currently not um, part of the World Health Organization, but has also mobilized extremely well to contain the spread of coronavirus. And surprisingly, except for my beloved country Zimbabwe, Africa has also done a very good job of trying to contain their spread. Particularly, I would like to mention Uganda and Rwanda. Rwanda especially making good use of protecting their, their vulnerable population, where their president, Paul Kagame, has said that he is going to mobilize the food bank for their people that are unemployed in their town centers so that they don't go hungry during this time. So yeah, that was very positive to see. And I think in general, Africa has done quite well so far. Something that I think needs to happen, if I had the chance and the expertise, I think would, in terms of increasing our use of medical technology for the purpose of contact tracing, we have a big problem in South Africa where it's not only now with COVID-19, but with TB, HIV. I think if we could somehow illegally and with maintaining people's human rights, find a way to keep people's health records online, but also have a geographical means of locating them so that we can help with contact tracing and then also finding out the kind of circumstances that they're living in that would go a long way to helping us with solving a few problems. But yeah, obviously there's a few ethical principles with that, which we'll not get into right now. Thank you very much to everyone that has joined in. I had a very good chat. I'm rambling. I think I need to think. But yeah, thank you very much. Check out Frontline Refuge. Please follow 15 Minute Medicine on our different platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please share our podcast as far as wide as possible. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>